Uh, for all of you guys that have been praying um, over our youth for the last couple weeks in reference to our youth retreat, man, your prayers were answered in a mighty way. We had such a great time. Our kids learned how to um, use scripture and use the Holy Spirit to help them to allow them to live a fearless faith. And uh, man, it was a powerful, powerful weekend. Some of our kids opened up about some of their fears that are really holding them back from being all that God could, has called them to be. So man, thank you for your prayers. They were felt. Uh, they were, there was such an impact. And I just would like to acknowledge, if you were an adult leader that you were involved with this weekend, um, I don't want to call you out, but I'm going to call you out. You guys, I just want to acknowledge you guys. If you guys would just stand. These people, these leaders, these adults have poured into these kids. And man, thank you guys. Thank you guys. So appreciative. All right. So um, I'm, I'm Pastor Melvin. I'm the student pastor here. And uh, I'm used to working on a, about a 20-minute timeline. So you guys might get, get to lunch a little bit early today. Um, but what I want you guys to do is go ahead and flip over to uh, Psalm 78, all right? And then um, when, and I, I did this with my kids, when you're there, you know, I'm going to give you about five seconds. I want This is the Bible flipping challenge here. But when you're there, if everybody's there, say, I'm there. If you're not there, say, I'm not there. Okay, that's some of our kids. That's all right. All right, we're going to Psalm. Now, just leave, stay right there. And now what I want everybody to do. Everybody in the house, everybody stand up. Now, all the introverts in the house, don't go crazy. I'm not going to go ask you to talk to somebody. I, I got you. I'm good. Okay. But we're going to play something that I know the uh, charter school, middle school kids at FCA play. It's called the pinky game. And so basically, I'm going to give you something. And if it applies to you, then you get to sit down. Okay. But um, so the example would be if you don't have a pet in your home, you would sit down. Okay. Does that make sense? Everybody good with that? Okay, so, first question is, if you sat down to eat breakfast as a family today, go ahead and sit down. Okay, good. All right. Second question. Second question. If you watched a family movie or had a family game night this week, sit down. Okay. Hold on. All right. Third question. Third question. If you did not have more than two organized extracurricular activities outside of the home, either sports, dance, or anything in nature, and you did not have two or more that took up your time and occupied your time this week, go ahead and sit down. All right. So, all right. All right. Another question. Next question. If you prayed together as a family within the last two days, go ahead and sit down. If you prayed together as a family within the last two days, go ahead and sit down. Yes, I'll tell you what. 
Sydney's up here saying some of y'all are liars, but you see he's standing up. <laughs> All right, now, last one. If you read the Bible as a family this week, sit down. All right, everybody go ahead and sit down, guys. Go ahead and sit down. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your honesty. So today, uh, what we're going to be talking about and our second core value here um, that we're going to be talking about that I've been uh, blessed to, to speak on is family. All right, and so what I like to do with our youth is we set the table. So we kind of review what we stand for. Uh, last week, you know, we talked about int intimacy with God, and Sid came up and, and just shared that intimacy with God is the cornerstone, is the foundation of everything that you should do. Because everything, that, every other core value that we have is going to flow out of that intimacy with God, okay? Um, key question for you guys. After God, is my family my highest priority? Is my family my highest priority? Okay. I'm going to challenge you guys with that today in your thinking of what it is that is, makes your family your priority. Now, here at Heritage, uh, our mission statement is we are going to grow we're going to grow spiritually, we're going to live, and we're going to serve. Part of growing spiritually is discipleship. And we believe in discipleship, we follow the Matthew 419 model, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. First, you have to accept that invitation to follow. Second, while following, you are changed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit that Christ has put inside you. And then third you are going to commit to the mission that Christ has called us to, and that's to go and make disciples of all nations, okay? That is what we believe in here. Um, and because of our discipleship model and our discipleship mode, uh, when Heritage was first established, there were core values uh, that were established to promote what we believe in growing, living, and serving, okay? Family was one of those foundational um, core values, and that's what we're going to talk about. Now, Sid did this last week and did a personal inventory in reference to your intimacy with God, and we're going to do the same thing here in reference to family, okay? So go ahead and get out your, your papers, get your papers, your pens, all that stuff, and then we're going to take an inventory here, all right? And we're going to ask you some questions, and again... You're going to answer on this scale, zero being never, one being occasionally, two making some progress, three often, and four being most of the time. Because as Sid said last week, nobody does this all the time, and if you do, you're lying. And that's between you and the Lord. Confess. Okay. So, in family affairs, I make my choices based on what I believe is important to God and those most impacted by my choices. Okay, zero to four. I embrace how God is using uh, family as a way of conforming me and uh, more and more in his image. I interact with my family in such a way that they are seeing me live out what I say I believe. God's word dictates the structure of my home. 
I show my priority for my family by being available physically, emotionally, and mentally when they need me. And last, I see my family as my first call of ministry. There you go. So, there's the answer key there for you, too. And do we have that where they can see if they are in a certain range? You're a baby if you're between three and eight. You are childlike follower between seven and 12. You're a growing disciple if you're between 13 and 18. And then you are a maturing disciple maker if you are between 19 and 24. Now, here's the thing. If you are a babe in Christ and it's three to six, guess what? There's still hope because you're not supposed to stay stagnant. You are supposed to be moving toward a maturing Christian. If your faith is stagnant and it's not moving, then I would have to question what your faith is. Your faith is either increasing or decreasing. It never stays stagnant. Okay? Now, these questions are not to condemn at all. They're just to bring the light, to bring it to attention. Um, and, and guess what? Some of this stuff might get up in your business. And, but know that it's coming from a place of love. Because here's the thing. I, I struggle as a dad, as a pastor, just like everybody else with a lot of these things. So it's coming from a person that's literally preaching to the choir here. Okay? So we're at Psalm 78. And we're going through verse 4 and 8. Okay, and it says this. It says, we will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued, for he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hopes anew on God, not forgetting his glorious uh, miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. Now, if you go back to verse 4, and you're an underline or highlighter, highlight, underline that word truth. Because that's the first word that stuck out to me. We're not supposed to hide it. At all. What is truth? Better yet, who is truth? Jesus, that's right. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And truth is rooted in the eternal God who is all-powerful and unchangeable. It's not just something that can, you can just act upon. You can act upon it. But it's not just something to be acted upon. However, the truth can definitely act upon you. You can't change the truth. The truth can, and if you allow it to, will change you. John 17, 17 says this, Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Jesus is the living word. Jesus is a living word. We know that from John 1.14. He is the fulfillment of the promise of the word of God. And if you do not have a confident 
knowledge of that fact, then it will be impossible, and I repeat, impossible to do right by your family. Now, a lot of us think doing right by our family means we put a roof over their head, they got clothes to wear, they got food to eat, they're in the best schools, they're in the best programs, and is that part of good parenting? Absolutely. Do we not want what is best for our children? Yes or no? We want what's best for our children. Is it the most important? Is it the most important? Now, we know we want what's best for our children. How much more does God want for us and our families? If we want what's best, don't you think God wants what's best for us? And if he wants what's best for us, what is best for us? Our relationship, our intimacy with him, is it not? God has blessed us abundantly with so many gifts and talents and abilities. You know, some of us are extremely phenomenal athletes. Some are great artists. Some are great musicians. Um, some have, you know, just, you know, knowledge of, of work and processes that, you know, and all of these talents are wonderful and great. But what happens is, is that when we start looking at the blessings that God has bestowed and we hold so firmly onto those blessings, they become our gods, our little G-O-D-S. And what we try and do is we try to strive and, you know, and sustain those things instead of the God, the relationship with the God that gave us those things to begin with. Instead of trusting him, we, trust, we start beginning to trust on the abilities that God has given us to obtain all the things that, you know, we could get through our abilities. When bottom line is we're supposed to use those things to serve the kingdom. The Bible itself is full of examples of God's glorious wonders and deeds and all of his miracles. Anybody in here, shout out something in that line, something in that line that, hey, it matches Something of uh, an example of God's miraculous deeds or, or power. Somebody shout it out. In the Bible. Huh? His faithfulness. I'm talking about a specific event that showed his miraculous glory. Anything. Specific event that you sat there and went, whoa, God. Anybody? Rainbow. Huh. Shout out. I can't hear you too much. Red, parting the Red Sea. Anybody else? Resurrection, absolutely. Anybody else? Okay. You guys, you guys want to know something? You want to know how you came by that knowledge? Because when it first happened, somebody chose to document it. They chose to pass it on to their next generation. So on and so forth, till it got to a person that decided they were going to translate into a language that we could understand. And so on and so forth, till that information got into your hands. That information came from the Bible. Now, question I have for you. How many of you heard that information, that biblical information, for the first time from your immediate family? From your immediate family. I would say that's less than about 
have heard these miraculous deeds and these truths from your immediate family. Do you know at one time that the Bible was the number one text in our education system, in our public education system? From the, early, um, from the 1700s to the, earliest, to the early uh, 20th century, the Bible was the number one text taught in public schools. I'm going to give you some information, and I want you to see how the removal of the Bible in normal societal environments has impacted our families, okay? So, in 1867, this was the first year that uh, divorce statistics were actually um, kept. In 1867 to 1879, the divorce rate was 3%. First time that the statistics were recorded. That's such a hard word to say for me. All right. 3%. Okay, by 1939, the divorce rate was 19%. Now, there's some extenuating factors that that came about here because in 1933, um, there was the highest unemployment rate in the history of our country. So, it, you know, divorce rates kind of came up a little bit. By 1940, um, religion being taught in schools um, was starting to become a tension-filled type thing within certain regions of our country, and certain regions removed the Bible as part of their text. So that's in the 1940s, all right? Um, And in the 1940s, um, the divorce rate fluctuated uh, from 20% at its lowest rate and up to 47% at its highest rate. Okay, there's also other factors. We had wars, uh, recovery from from the Great Depression, um, some of the other things that were going on. Now, in the 50s, uh, divorce rate lowered and kind of stabilized again. Now, in the 50s, something significant happened is that most homes in America started getting televisions, okay? And at that time, when television programming, programming came on, it was wholesome family entertainment. You know, you the Andy Griffith Show, stuff like that. So, you know, people were watching wholesome family values. Also, in the very end of the 40s, a phenomenal preacher came on the scene and started doing, you know, um, preaching around the country, and lives were being changed, and family values, there was a swelling of family values in our country. Anybody remember that preacher, what his name was? Billy Graham, that's right. Okay. So in the 50s, um, the divorce rate stayed about 25%. 25%. Now, something very significant happened in 1962. In 1962, the Supreme Court ruled that in public school, uh, excuse me, that prayer in public school was a violation of the First Amendment by constituting an establishment of religion. Okay, that's in 1962. 1963, the courts disallowed Bible readings in school for the same exact reason. Okay, that's 1962-1963. By 1970, from a rate from 25, and this is seven, eight years later, it rose to 35%. Now, 16, 17 years later, 1979, divorce rate, 53%. 53%. 
Now, for the 80s, rate remained relatively the same with it fluctuating anywhere between 47 53%. But there was a new factor that emerged. People more so than in any other time in our history, unmarried couples started living together without being married. So it wasn't a matter of divorces not really happening. It was a matter more of marriages not happening. You know, the mindset went, we'll test the waters first. We'll test the waters first. And if it doesn't work, guess what? We just break up and fine. That was the mindset. Because these truths that were initially being taught were no longer being taught in the schools. And we see that, unfortunately, because of what we're seeing to statistics, is that families were depending on the schools to teach them what you were supposed to be teaching them in your homes. By the end of the 90s, divorce rate had dipped down to 41%, still a very high number, but a major reason for the dip is people weren't getting married as much. Now, in the 70s, as our divorce rate grew, the number of children born out of wedlock grew. In 1965, this is three years after, the amount of children born out of wedlock to minority families was 24%. For Caucasian families, 3.1%. By 1900, by 1990, excuse me, those stats soared to 64% in minority communities, 18% for Caucasian communities. Today, as we speak, 40% of all children born in the United States are born out of wedlock. Do you see the impact the lack of the Bible has had on our families? How the world has tried to redefine what a family should look like? Think about it. Way back when, I mean way, way back when, way, way, way back when, like in Sid's day. <laughs> the Bible was something prevalent in all of society. It was taught everywhere. It was something that, you know, we had a foundation on, and it was just something that was known. Hey, if I'm going to school, I'm going to learn about the Bible. I'm going to church, I'm going to learn about the Bible. We missed out. And there was that disconnect because we're relying on the church, we're relying on school, when we are called as a family to make sure the Bible is the foundation of our homes. God had a structure and a design on how families were supposed to work. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians for me. We're going to go to Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21, it says this. And Paul is speaking on what is proper in a family. Verse 21, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to the husband, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. There is that bad word that we don't like to talk about in church. 
and it's submission. Submit. Wives, don't throw stuff at me. It's not me telling you. It is the Bible telling you. It is God's word telling you. You are to submit to your husbands, not because of who he is, but because of who Christ is. Now, here's the thing. Men, I don't want you getting all puffy chest and looking over at your wives, and I'm glad because I'm not seeing that going, it's right, woman, you're supposed to submit to me. I'm, I say goes. And the women, I can know in the back of their mind, you don't tell me what to do. You don't own me. I don't, mm. you know. And it's really bad if you start seeing the neck roll. Here's the thing. Men, if you actually did that and huffed up your chest and said that to your woman, you'd probably get beat up and we'd have to laugh at you. That's one. But here's the thing. Husbands, you are supposed to make your wife feel secure and confident in your ability to lead her because you are to be the biggest example of Jesus Christ to her. For her to see Jesus, she should have to look no further than to her mate, to her spouse, to the one that she gave her vows to. Ladies, got a question for you. How many of you are willing to submit to Jesus? Okay. Men, catch that. You're to be Jesus to her. If you gave her everything, if you loved her the way that Christ loved the church, she would have no problem submitting to your leadership in her house. You don't believe me? Try it. How do you do that? We keep reading. Verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. It's a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say... Each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And just so you know, that wife must respect her husband. That is not issued in the sense of a command. What will happen, that's issued as they, um, in, in the form of a consequence. It's saying, men, you do these things, your wife will respect you. If you do these things, your wife will respect you. You know, we talk about that submission. But if you look up at the very top at verse 21, the first thing it says, and further, submit to one another. Submit to one another. It's not just calling out women and saying submit. It's like, hey, men, you too. But this is how you do it. I've given you a guideline. I've shown you how it's supposed to be done. 
Men, husbands, you are to be that main example to Jesus, not only to your wives, but to your children as well. Do you understand what kind of influence that you guys have as parents? I know a lot of you can think back to your family when you were young and you were kids, and if you had a great childhood, and I'm praying that a lot of you did, and I know some of you didn't, but there's certain things that, you know, dad passed on to you, that mom passed on to you, you know, and you guys, some love of hunting, you know, we have hunters in the house, you know, love of fishing, love of music, you know, and these are some of the things, you know, Hopefully, hopefully, for some of you, it's the love of God's word. Because that should have been the first thing that should have been passed on to you, was the love of God's word. And students, guys, there's a big part for you in this as well. Students, if we go on to Ephesians 6, it says, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. For this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you. And you will have a long life on the earth. Further instructions for the dads here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Kids, students, you're not supposed to honor your father and mother because of who they are. You are to honor them because you are the Lord's. And you are to honor him. And he has called you to honor your mother and father. Now, moms and dads, if we're truthful, are we always acting honorably? No. You know, there's times. So here's the thing. If you know that and you catch yourself going that way, you know what are the best things you could ever say to your kid is? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I screwed up. I screwed up. But you know what? I'm learning from it. Man, Tristan can tell you how many times I've had to say sorry to him for blowing up. I've had to apologize to him. You know? My daughter, she's here. I've had to apologize to her growing up. We are going to be, we are human with a sin nature. But here's the thing, guys, and the wonderful thing about this is that in Christ we are a new creation. We don't have to hold on to the sins of our fathers. We don't have to hold on to the sins of our history. What we do need to do is go back to the Word and build our families on the foundation of the Word. Family is important. Not because I say so, it's because God commanded it. It should be cherished. It should be protected. It should be nurtured. Most of all, it should be taught these truths. Not only taught, but needs to be shown. Because here's the thing. Parents, if you want to say one thing to your kids and then do another all you're going to cause is confusion, and they're going to see what their faith is as something that they should be following you in, and that's okay to be a hypocrite. If you teach them, 
and show them and live it out. You know what that does? That adds weight to your words. That adds substance. But if you want to teach them and then you're not willing to live it out and show them yourselves, all you've done is show them that your words are empty and meaningless. Because you're not living out the faith that you're trying to teach them about. You guys have a choice right here and now if you have not made it. You have a choice to make the spiritual health of your family your number one priority. You guys can choose to make busyness, activities, all of these other meaningless things the priority and make them the little G-O-D-S, the little gods in your household. Or you can choose to serve the Lord and make him the head of your household. In Joshua 24, 15, Joshua said to the people, he said, but if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served before the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. You're going to serve one or the other. Am I standing up here preaching to you and telling you you need to cut everything else out, every other extracurricular activity out of your house? No. But I am telling you this. If that is taking in the place of your relationship with your heavenly father and it is a distraction between you teaching your kids the foundation of faith in the Bible, then yes, you need to make some adjustments. If you decide it's your priority to put God on a shelf and only come to him when it's convenient for you, then yes, you need to make some adjustments. For me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And my prayer is and my challenge to you is the same. For you and your families, serve the Lord. Make him a priority in your household. Schools aren't going to do it. Guess what? An hour here on Sunday ain't going to do it. Hour and a half on Wednesday nights ain't going to do it. But if you take the reins in your family and you take the reins in your household and you know what? You go, hey, son, no baseball tonight. I'm going to teach you a biblical truth here. Daughter, no dance tonight. There's priorities we need to put in place. God instituted the family for a reason and the enemy has attacked it so fervently. And guess what? Remember how Sid used to say that we're only just one generation away? Guess what? That generation is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. The introduction, the introduction of technology and all this kind of stuff that the kids have access to, and we know some of those things that they have easy access to that damage our brains. If we don't have a biblical truth to combat the enemy's lie, then guess what? We are a defeated people. But if we have a biblical truth to stand firmly on, 
put our foot down on it and say, no, Satan, you have no reign over me, then you're doing your jobs as a family. But if your kids can't do that, if your kids can't sit there and say, hey, I know the devil is trying to get me, but here's scripture to combat what the devil is trying to do. If you don't have that, if your kids don't have that, guess what, parents? You're missing something. You're missing something. Tell all the nations, all the nations, make sure it's told at home. Let's pray. Dear Assembly Father, Lord, we just come before you. Lord, I pray over every single family represented here, Lord. And I know that there's been a disconnect a long time ago. Lord, we have single-family homes. We have broken homes. We have recyclable marriages, Lord. Lord, that's not the way that you designed it. Lord, I pray that as a, as a, as, as a body of Christ believers that we come back to your word. Lord, Lord, that we rely on your truths. Lord, that you, you enable us, you embolden us to live out that faith in the community so that everybody can see. Everybody can see I stand for my family. They are my priority. And because I stand for my family, I need to teach them how to love you. I need to show them what loving you means. Lord, let that be a challenge to us this week, Lord, that we prioritize the spiritual healths of our households. Lord, you are an awesome, incredible, incredible God. Lord, you love us in spite of ourselves. And Lord, we're going to fall and we're going to fail. But you will always be there to pick us back up. Keep us out of the muck and the mire. Dust us off so that we can live another day for you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this body of believers. And Lord, we give you all the praise and glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.